HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meat in 3, we find out why the bacon, egg, and cheese, that classic bodega sandwich, is popping up on menus of New York's trendiest restaurants. We did a few iterations of it, and I was trying to fancify it. We tried the sausage, egg, and cheese, and then we tried to put charmoula sauce on it. We used feta cheese, and we're just like taking ingredients of the Mediterranean, if you will, and try to infuse it. But uh, for me, it was like a car wreck. Tune in to hear about the wild journey of the bacon, egg, and cheese from deli to fine dining on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who inspires me with their passion, their love of food, and their love of life. And today, I have someone who personifies all of those attributes, someone who I've known for a really long time, a cookbook author. She's co-authored 11 books and now has her own out called Sababa. Adina Sussman, welcome to Speaking Broadly. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Sababa means awesome, cool. Cool, great. All good. It's derived from an Arabic word, which means the highest form of love. It's a high Arabic word. And a lot of Israelis are actually from Arabic countries. And I think that's how the word kind of was extrapolated and taken into the Hebrew slang lexicon. And it's really stuck around. It's a word that everyone uses in a million different ways. I mean, it, it couldn't be better. And it sounds, it's fun to say. It's fun to say. In English. Yes. Like, I just want to keep saying sababa. <laughs> Thank you. So what was the origin of the cookbook? I had been asked to potentially, my agent Janice Jano had suggested that I write a book proposal about Israeli cooking. I had been working with Chrissy Teigen most recently on her books and Lee Schrager and a bunch of other people. And I always had a little bit of hesitation because I wasn't living there. I was visiting a lot and I worried about being a bit of an interloper and I wanted to do a really in-depth job. And then about five years ago, actually this week, I met my future husband, Jay, 
and um, started spending more time in Tel Aviv and eventually moved there. And while I was working with Courtesy on her second book, uh, Hungry for More, we took a sort of extended break for a variety of reasons. And I found myself in Tel Aviv with time on my hands that I didn't anticipate having. And I realized that I had no choice but to work on this book proposal. Like it was <laughs> it was now or never. So I, I spent a month just holed up <laughs> working night and day on this proposal, going back and forth with my agent, getting a lot of feedback, sharing it with my husband, different people. And once I finally sort of put the pedal to the metal, it we we sent it in and it sold somewhat quickly. So that was January 2017. Well, you had a great track record with <laughs> Thank you. Um, the Chrissy Teigen books, which are fantastic. I've only heard wonderful <laughs> things about being on that set and working with her. Oh, it's it's been a dream and what what was it like working with Chrissy who's so outspoken and funny and she's someone who taught me or reinforced that you always just have to stay true to your own culinary instincts. Um, working with her is like truly a collaboration. I moved in with her and John for I, during both books. The first book I lived with them for the better part of two months, two and a half months on and off while we cooked for the book. Your kid. No. <laughs> LA or New York? LA. LA, baby. <laughs> yeah, um, that was it was a great story actually. Um we had talked about I had interviewed for the job like with a bunch of other writers and they selected me, which I was surprised and excited about it. And then we took some time off before we started and then we all had a meeting. John had just won his Oscar for Glory and we were sitting in their apartment in Tribeca. There was a big meeting with everyone from WME and Clarkson which is an agency, Potter, so talent agency, and Clarkson Potter, which is Chrissy's cookbook publisher, and all kinds of people, and we were just passing John's Oscar around, and everyone was really excited. And Chrissy said, "Okay, we're ready to start, but there's just one thing." And like she turned over to me and she said, "We want you to move to LA, come to LA, and live with us." You know, and there was just sort of this giant pregnant pause, and everyone was just kind of looking my way, like, "Oh no, what's going to happen?" Like that's a big ask, and I just kind of shrugged and said, "All right." <laughs> You know, I had just met Jay and I was kind of going back and forth to Israel a lot anyway. And I really wanted to do the project. And I just said, sure. You know, I decided to just take a leap and worked out great. We had an amazing time cooking together. It was very spontaneous. She's a very spontaneous cook. Cravings being the name of her book. And it was a lot of fun. She's a great cook. She has an amazing Thai mom who's a fabulous cook. John has great cooking instincts. They're just a very food-oriented family. It's very hard to imagine moving in with superstars. <laughs> I think he was I think he was a, a got at that point or an ego. <laughs> he didn't have one of them. But um which is a, a Grammy and Oscar and uh, an Emmy, a Grammy and Oscar and a Tony. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it was a different time in their life. Like they were famous but not mega famous yet. You know, Chrissy when I met her had only two million Instagram followers and now she has twenty seven million. So we were living in a rental. They were, didn't have kids. So there was no nanny. There was no security. There was no housekeeper. We all, we washed our own dishes. You know, it was, it was really the four of us, Chrissy's mom, Pepper, me, John, and Chrissy, just all the time <laughs> at the house. And they, and they were there for a couple of months, which also strikes me as unusual. I mean, they, we took breaks. They would send me back to New York for a weekend if they had, you know, or she would do the, the Grammys or whatever. They, John would be performing. And we definitely took breaks. But when we were there, we were really there. And I have friends in L.A. So if I had a few days off, I would go hang out with friends. And, you know, my general approach when I'm co-authoring a book is, you know, I, I've 
dedicated myself to this project and it's not about me. It's about the person that I'm working with. And that's worked out really well for me. I really like supporting other people and like helping their vision come to life and channeling their voice. And I knew it was going to be a relatively short period of time. It wasn't an an open-ended window. So something I was willing to do and it worked out great. And they're very laid back. The first night that we cooked together, (laughs) we spent all this time making this roasted zucchini lasagna and you know, we put it in the oven and they, they were sitting on the couch watching TV, which is what they end up doing a lot of nights. And the lasagna came out of the oven and it looked amazing. And I let it cool for a little while and I brought it over to the couch to serve them and they had fallen asleep on the couch. <laughs> so, you know, it was... It probably got better with time. Next day, even better. Totally. I mean, they woke up in the middle. I went to sleep, left it on the counter. They woke up in the middle. I tasted it and I woke up in the morning to a text like, this is great. Great start. You know, so... It was a fun time. Yeah. What's the difference between working with others? Because you've been a co-author mm-hmm. 11 times. And what are the lessons that you took with you from being a co-author? At first, I had a major crisis of confidence <laughs> before I found my footing. I worried about regaining my own voice after spending so much time writing on behalf of others, something that I had become really good at. And most of my work had been in the service of others for the better part of a decade. And all of a sudden to be faced with an empty page and a blank blinking cursor and to have to stand behind your words and have them be your own, it it really took me a while. So I actually put the writing on the back burner and just cooked a lot. And you know what I always tell my co-authors when I work with them, when they say, when are we going to start writing? I say, let's cook first and write later, because by the time we've cooked through this book, we're going to have developed a shared culinary language. We're going to have an idea of our vision and the words that are going to go along with it. I'm going to know you so much better. So in a way, cooking my own food was sort of a reconnecting with my own voice and understanding what I wanted to say and do. So that was kind of how it went. I did most of the cooking probably in about nine months, maybe, maybe a year. I got married in the middle there. So I took some breaks. Um, You know, I was meeting people all the time. I was becoming friends with chefs and people who lived in Israel and my ideas were changing. And I wanted the book to reflect how I was cooking right now and how I cooked at home. And it is very much a book for home cooks. And so in what way did the way that you cook evolve from the beginning of this book to the end of the book? Yeah. You talk about making dishes in 20 minutes. I mean, it always had speed. It always had freshness. It Mm -hmm. always had Israel. But what did you take out in order to make room for something else? I think the soul of the book, a lot of it emanates from the stories I told from inside the market. And I made some more room to tell those stories. And I felt like I could actually drop a couple of my recipes in the service of telling stories of people who live in the market whose culture might be dying or... Tell me about a a recipe of someone whose culture is dying. That sounds poignant. And I bet the recipe is delicious. You know, a lot of the people I'm talking about are people like a spice vendor, for instance. Like they didn't actually give me a recipe for the book, but they inspire my cooking every day. These were a couple of brothers, the Amrani brothers, who are third generation vendors in the Carmel market. And their grandfather, who immigrated from Yemen, he used to rally the whole family every year to dry thousands of sweet peppers and grind paprika on their own for the shop. And in the back, they have this hidden courtyard that's filled with these huge sifters where they would sift grains and beans. And they're made out of beautiful hand-wrought wood with um, the sinews of goats are what the strings are made out of. And they're just as strong as they were 80 years ago as they are now. And they don't use them anymore. But these people, the Amrani brothers, their sons are high-tech executives or live in America. And, you know, Israel in some ways is kind of one generation behind the United States 
these people don't want their kids, they want their kids to move on from these things. I think the grandkids might be like, hey, this is really cool, the Carmel market. Like, I want to make sure we hold on to this. But my fear is whether the businesses will survive in that gap generation. So I just really wanted to share photos and stories of people like the Imrani brothers who also made me feel at home almost from the beginning. You know, after my 10th visit to the Shook or the 20th, they sort of realized she's not like a tourist in a month-long Airbnb. This woman lives here. (laughs) And she's asking all kinds of crazy questions about how she can use spices or where does this come from? Or are there only really two kinds of hot peppers that, you know, get used or sold in Israel all the time? You know, so... So you got married in the middle of the process. (laughs) What did love have to do with the whole (sighs) thing? Well, I had been living in New York for... Uh, like 17 years and you know I had a great career and I had a cute little apartment on the Upper West Side I had great friends but I was a little bit bored I was sort of ready for a change and I also was single and was dating a lot of guys and meeting people and you know I had thought I might be ready to move to either California or Israel these were California New York and Israel are all the places that I feel super comfortable speak the language both literally and sort of spiritually or metaphorically and when I met Jay he was in New York on a business trip and we just clicked right away he's actually grew up in upstate New York in Millerton in this formerly blue collar town where his father had a roadside diner called the Gateway Diner that's amazing yeah so you know Jay also obviously he worked as a line cook in his father's restaurant as a teenager he's the best dishwasher I've ever met my life. Very Um, helpful. Very helpful skill. And he's just a great guy. And I just realized like I had a chance to move somewhere that I loved and pursue this relationship. And I just kind of went for it. And I actually met Chrissy and Jay the same month. (laughs) And so for the first year, I was writing this book with her and falling in love with this guy and going back and forth to Israel. And we got an apartment together almost four years ago in December 2015. And that was really when, you know, I say I I moved to Israel for love and I stayed for the shook. So, (laughs) you know, it just kind of all happened together. And also because I had been working in the food industry in New York for so long and so many people were starting to visit, I just kind of became a person that people people reached out to when they came to Israel and I lived right by the market and it just kind of all gelled beautifully and and then we got engaged and we got had an amazing wedding in Tel Aviv with fabulous food and just a super Israeli vibe like a late night party you know some people showed up in tuxedos some people showed up in flip-flops very Israeli style <laughs> when you left New York, yeah, you were leaving a lot behind. I mean, you were going, oh, yeah, you were going towards a lot. I was. I had definitely had fears about what impact it would have on my career, my co-authoring career, my authoring career, the connections that I had made, and would I be able to upkeep them? And how did you talk yourself through that and get to the other side of it? And what happened on the other side of it? <laughs> I tried to allay those fears. I first of all, I had work projects that were based in the United States. I started working on the second Cravings book and I was able to work on it from there, helping Chrissy with the narrative of the book. And I just tried to live in the present and I had focused on my career for so long. Just, I started working in the food world when only when I was 30 and I felt like I had a lot of ground to make up. I, you know, I got my job at Gourmet at age 30 and I worked there till 30 three and a half and went to culinary school and I've been working on my own since 2005. And you know, I got into the food world, I would say just in time. There's so many people who are younger than me who might be willing to work for less money or in a different setting. And I just 
for the first 10 years, I just worked all the time. I tried every possible avenue. I did food styling. I did catering. I wrote. I edited. I did copywriting. I was a restaurant critic for Manhattan Magazine for five years. I started co-authoring books. And it just, it was a lot. I was ready for a little break. It's not like I stopped working. But actually having a change of scenery helped me distill what it was that I really loved. And I dropped all the other stuff and just kind of focused on cookbook writing. And what was the net effect of moving I did. I will say I do think that there are some chefs and personalities who want to work with somebody who is near them. And that's something that I completely understand. I think that having my own cookbook career became something that I was interested in pursuing for that reason. And also I am continuing to work with Chrissy. There will be a third book at some point. I do consulting for her and, you know, other opportunities have popped up that I would have missed out on if I had just stayed in New York. So I do more stuff that's connected to the Israeli food industry now. Sometimes I do some consulting or I've been asked to maybe lead a culinary tour of Israel sort of based on Sababa and how I live. So, you know, different opportunities arise. I've always been someone who kind of took risks like I've left jobs before I had other jobs lined up. I left a whole nother industry and career to kind of pursue the food thing. I don't know why. I just, I, I've been able to live with that uncertainty. With Jay not being Israeli, yep. I'm curious, he had an influence on the book. Oh, definitely. What was his influence on the book? You know, I lived in New York as a sort of food writer gal around town for a long time. I was developing tons of recipes and honestly what I was mostly eating at home were things that I had left over from my day's work and I wasn't cooking dinner for myself or for someone else and this was the first time in a long time that I was making nightly dinner or a few nights a week as opposed to just a big Shabbat dinner. So it really got me into the habit of what I needed to have around the house to make great meals without spending hours in the kitchen because I was busy and because I didn't want to. (laughs) And also knowing who was going to be eating this food. So, you know, the first chapter of the book is filled with all of these condiments and staples that you can either buy or make that give you just tons of options in the kitchen, all the different, you know, everything from roasted cherry tomatoes, which have been incredibly popular and sort of surprised me with what a surprise they are to so many people. Just having a tray of incredible burst cherry tomatoes roasted in good olive oil, you can make a pasta sauce, you can put them on top of labanet yogurt with toasted pine nuts and a little bit of lemon and olive oil. And you've got basically a quick meal if you have some good pita around. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. 
our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe, taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. I was looking back to see when we first intersected, which, of course, I can't exactly tell you, <laughs> but I still remember the piece that you wrote for Food & Wine on markets in Jerusalem. Yes. Thank it, you for it, that opportunity. No, it really <laughs> it really made me want to go, and mm. I just thought your new book, Sababa, had the exact same effect on me. Like, I wanted to go to the market, and I wanted to go hang out with you. What is it with you and markets? <laughs> um, I think I use them as ways to quickly acclimate myself to a new place, and even Israel, which is a place that I'm very familiar with, I get into the market, get down and dirty with the vendors and spend a lot of time there. And my journalistic instincts kind of kick in. I do a lot of listening before I ask questions. And having moved to Israel a few years ago and moving right to the Carmel market area, it just quickly became a place that helped me absorb, which is the word that is used for when you make Aliyah and sort of become part of the culture. It's your absorption process. So I was definitely like a sponge and being absorbed by the Carmel market. Tell me about that market, because there's restaurants, there's mm -hmm. stalls, mm -hmm. there's food. Mm -hmm. It's about 150 meters from the beach in Tel Aviv. It's very different than the Jerusalem market, which obviously is landlocked. And you get there early in the morning and you feel ocean breeze coming off the water. It's cool. And it's a very urban place, but it also has a very sort of magical feeling, especially at the beginning and the end of the day. And I spend a lot of time there at the beginning of the day. You get there before everybody else. <laughs> I do. I'm such an early riser. And, you know, my first day living in Tel Aviv in 2015, I just, my instinct was just to get up and walk down the four flights of stairs from my house and go to the market. And I had lived in Jerusalem after college and Jerusalem, because it's a religious town, everything is sort of determined by religious life. People get up early to pray. The market opens earlier. It closes earlier. So I got to the Carmel market kind of assuming that I would find a bustling market at 7 or 7.30 in the morning. And I found myself alone <laughs> with maybe a bunch of bales of spring garlic and lots of cartons of vegetables waiting to be unpacked by the vendors who had not even arrived yet. So that was a really amazing revelation for me and sort of really an indication of what kind of a town Tel Aviv is, which is a nighttime town. <laughs> when you describe Tel Aviv, both in the book and what you're describing now. Surfing, yeah. I have to tell you, like it just never <laughs> entered my consciousness. Oh and yeah, we live about a three minute walk from the beach now and I swim almost every day in Israel um, in an outdoor pool year round. It's pretty dreamy in Tel Aviv. And uh, <laughs> Take me back. What first drew you to food and what first drew you to Israel? Because you've been yeah. going back and forth to and from Israel for such a, a long, long time. time. And then love, of course, took yes, over. Yes, it did. Um, so 
I, my parents actually lived in Israel for the year before I was born and I was almost born in Jerusalem. At seven months, my mom got on the plane sort of right under the deadline and I was born in Connecticut and grew up in Palo Alto. But we always, we visited Israel. We were very Israel focused. I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home, kosher and Sabbath observant. And Israel was very much a part of our life and my education. And it informed our family life a lot. And it was a place that we aspired to go to and to live in. And I, from an early age, kind of absorbed that message and but it sounds like you also rejected some of it. Oh, yeah. I'm no longer Orthodox. <laughs> and I don't when keep did kosher. That, when, that, those are like big switches. When did yeah. that happen? Um, or why? I'd say that I officially kind of fell off the wagon in my mid to late 20s. <laughs> my whole family's still Sabbath observant and kosher. I'm very close with them. And we have a really mutually respectful relationship. But I think a lot of it did have to do with my love of food, which was instilled in me by my parents. I mean, we were hosting people nonstop at our house on Shabbat. And because we lived in a very small Orthodox community and my parents were involved in a lot of the institutions, we hosted Nobel Prize winners and chief rabbis and all these people. And I would get home from summer camp and my mom would be like, see that bed, your bed? The chief rabbi of France slept there when you were away. (laughs) Um, But my mom worked, um, but she was an incredible cook. And her mother hated to cook. And my mom grew up in a house that was not religious at all. She became Orthodox when she met my father, when they were set up on a blind date. And she learned both how to cook and how to cook Jewish at the same time. So the two cookbooks, both of which I have in my possession that we sort of learned from were the New York Times cookbook by Craig Claiborne and a Chabad Lubavitch kosher cookbook where we learned how to make all the Jewish staples. So this is kind of the duality that I grew up with. And I still, you know, my New York Times cookbook is covered with all the stains and the pages from things I tried to make as a kid. So you felt like if you were going to pursue food, you needed to change the parameters of what you ate. I wanted to explore the world one bite at a time, and I didn't want to feel any limitations. And I felt that from a really young age. And also because we did not have access to a lot of kosher food that a lot of other people did, I definitely felt limitations in what we were cooking and what we were eating. We got our kosher meat once a month in frozen boxes from Chicago. We had a whole freezer for our meat. And, you know, we didn't eat a lot of meat, which is interesting sort of, you know, before our time because we didn't have a ton unlimited at all times. So, you know, that was kind of the environment we grew up in. My mom worked. She would call us and say, take the chicken out of the freezer. And if there are any extra feathers on the wings, pluck them off. This is how you make meringues. You know, she, she was giving us a lot of instruction over the phone and in person. And she made her own challah every week. And there were her amazing chicken, overnight chicken soup, which is one of the most popular recipes in the book which makes me super happy. And it was a very forgiving cooking environment. You know, if the bottom of the soup got burnt, it was smoky, split pea soup. (laughs) If the meringues were overbaked, they were crispy meringues. That was kind of the the philosophy. And that's still the philosophy that I hold to this day. Did you feel any sense of loss when you left that community that your parents were a part of? Definitely. I, I feared feeling like an outsider in my own family with whom I was and I'm still very close. But I realized, you know, actually my mother coming from her background, you know, not keeping kosher, she used to tell us at her favorite birthday meal, which was lobster with drawn butter at a restaurant in Queens, New York. And so 
she made one choice and I simply made another choice. And I think that at the end of the day, my parents just wanted me to be happy. And it's hard for me because I'm, I don't keep a kosher home. I can't cook for my family in the way that I would like to in my own home. So you talk about the ascendance of Israeli cuisine. I mean, we might be at peak Israeli cuisine. I think we're at the top. We might be at the top. I mean, perhaps yeah. there's more to go, but I feel like we're at peak Israeli. I think I got in just under the wire on some level. I mean, I think that... What we're peeking at is Israeli cuisine as a trend. I do think that there are certain elements of it that are going to remain part of American cooking canon. Sort of 35 years ago, balsamic vinegar was a trend. There are also a couple of extraordinary chefs who, in making Israeli food, brought it to the fore in the States. For sure. Right, like Mike Salmanov, who For sure. wrote the Forge to Your Cookbook. Yes. And I think very accurately said, like, my cookbook is about restaurant food mm-hmm. and, you know, the way that I view the food. And then Adina's is really for the home cook. But, you know, Mike was the most at, was amazing critical. Person. Yes. And he's an amazing, amazing person. Yeah. I feel like actually there's people in America who are responsible for making just delicious food that's very tied to a sense of place. All those places opened up about 10, like 10, 11 years ago is when Balabusta opened and Zahav opened. And there were some places making hummus and falafel beforehand. But these were people that were combining culinary technique with local ingredients and sort of, I would say, elevating them, but not making them seem out of reach. And that's something that's really important about Israeli food. It's exotic, but familiar. The The focus on brightness and spice and acidity from lemon, which is something that we all love. And you'll find acid from lemons in almost every Israeli salad or Israeli dressing. And it just has a simplicity and a punch that people can really relate to. And there are just tons of fresh vegetables and it feels very accessible and doable also for a home cook. Israeli food is as much about a vibe and a feeling as it is about the cooking itself. It's relaxed, it's loose, it can be spontaneous. There are a lot of things that come together quite quickly. The salad culture, you can have a lot of dips and spreads in the fridge that you make in advance. And all you need to do is have some really amazing fresh bread of which there is a wealth in Israel. There's a picture in the book of all of the like spreads and Mm -hmm. little plastic tubs. And I'm like, that's what I want my refrigerator to look like because then I'm ready for anything. Exactly. With the growth of interest in Israeli cuisine, I wonder if the misperceptions about it also group because it seems from the influences that you show in the book, Mm -hmm. there's a lot going on. And I think it has in a way gotten simplified down to fresh, bright salads, hummus or hummus. I think when you're living in Israel, it's easier to see the complexity of the cuisine, the combination of Arab and Palestinian influences on the food, which are really important and need to be talked about more. And also just the dozens of ethnic groups that live in Israel who influence the cuisine. And I've gotten a lot of questions about what is Israeli cuisine and what is this food? And, you know, my take on it is that these dishes all came from other places or many of them did. None of, not many of them are uniquely exactly Israeli. And why would we want to deny the provenance of a dish or where it came from that does nobody any service, the people who created it or the people who are eating it? So so you have friends across all across the, I do. the divide. I do. Um, and I'd love to know your thoughts on the Palestinian influence. You know, there's conflict mm-hmm. there between like, whose is it? Yeah. Who owns it? I always, what I tried to do in the book, at least, is when I started, I tried to cook the dishes that I felt had particularly strong Arab and Palestinian influences with people from those places so that I could kind of 
see how they cook them and also get their buy-in a little bit on what I was doing. And I felt like that in general is a great way to approach cooking other people's food is to really, it's not asking permission, but it's honoring and venerating where it came from and learning from the people. And, you know, and what dishes would fall into that? Um, in the, I mean, kanafa, for instance, which is a really popular dessert in almost every Israeli restaurant now. It's an Arab and Palestinian dessert. It's a stretchy cheese covered with a with a shredded pastry product, and it's sweet and it's delicious. And you know, Arabs, Palestinians, and Jews all make it, but it does have origins in the Arab Arabic kitchen. So. I went to an Arab town and I cooked it with a woman who made it a unique way. I had actually been invited to an iftar dinner, which is a holiday celebration meal. And she had served, usually it's served in a giant pan, kind of like a paella pan, and you cut off pieces of it, sort of like slices. And she made individual ones that she wrapped in this pastry product. So I went back to make them with her. She taught me how to make it. And I sort of explained to her what I was doing. And she was really excited about sharing the dish and how she made it with a larger audience. She also hosts groups in her home to teach people how to cook. So, you know, her name is in the book and I felt like I was, you know, maybe doing her a service as well, just like sending people her way. But I told her, hey, you know, most kanafa has like a sugar syrup on top. And my mom used to uh, top our pancakes with honey that she mixed with orange juice. So would you be okay if I did like a honey topping? And she said, that sounds lovely. You know, so that was kind of how I approached a lot of the dishes in the book. I'm sure there are instances in the book where one could argue that it had origins other than what I acknowledged, but it really is a big mishmash over there. I did the best <laughs> that I could. <laughs> and, know. and what you, you mentioned in the book, the um, other ethnicities, other cultures. Sure. In Tel Aviv, mm -hmm. uh, what are the most present cultures that aren't Arab, Palestinian, Israeli? You see a lot of, like, for instance, one of Michael Salmanov's favorite places is a Bulgarian skewer and grill shop. And Bulgarian kebabs have a very different flavor profile than other Middle Eastern ones. They have a lot more garlic in them, for instance. You see a lot of Yemenite food. Yemenite food is Arabic food in some ways because the Yemenite Jewish community came to Israel from Yemen, which is right in the middle of Africa, Arabic Africa, in the late 1880s, and then again in large numbers in the late 1940s and early 50s. But they have a lot of delicious spice blends that really elevate their soups, and they have incredible breads, because my friend Gil always, Chovav, who's a well-known writer in Israel, said that he's half Yemenite, and the joke used to be that the Yemenite cookbook has two pages, the first and the last. <laughs> and that's just because it was a cucina povera, and almost everything was made from flour, <laughs> you know, and oil or dough or whatever they had on hand, and they made a lot out of a little. But those foods have really come to be celebrated in Israel as comfort foods, the soups and these incredible overnight cooked Sabbath breads and lechuch, which is something between a pancake and a crumpet and an English muffin. It has holes in it and it's used to mop up broth. But I, I view it as kind of a morning pancake. And that's something that I do a lot in the book. I think being an outsider in a culinary culture, if you respect the culture, can bring a lot of new perspective and ideas about how to use ingredients and, and recipes. Are there people who took you under their wing. Yes. I know there was one person who like 
you tucked in and you haven't moved since. That's Gil Chovav. He's um, a very well-known Israeli food critic and food personality and author. And his great-grandfather, Eliezer Ben Yehuda, created the modern Israeli Hebrew language. Every street in Israel has a Ben Yehuda street. And he said that they rank the cities based on how long the Ben Yehuda street is. <laughs> but he's an amazing writer. He's both very populist, but he writes in a very beautiful high Hebrew, sort of like his great-grandfather would have. So his language is amazing. And he just has so much history in his family. His every morning at six in the morning, Israeli radio starts out by playing a recording of a morning prayer that traditional Jews say, and it's his father. Wow. <laughs> like saying the prayer. Right. I don't have no idea why, but we kind of hit it off and became friends about 20 years ago. And every single visit that I made to Israel, he would take me on um, culinary adventures to different restaurants to cook with me in people's homes to talk to me about food. Um, and I was asking tons of questions because I was starting to get interested in the subject. And he remains a super close friend to this day. And we've done Yemenite pop-ups in different cities around the world, Berlin, New York. Is the reception different uh, one city to the next? In a place like New York, we'll get a lot of Israelis who are familiar with the food, who are sort of looking at it as a nostalgic way to eat a traditional meal that they're really familiar with. Um, we did one in Berlin years ago and hardly anyone there had eaten any of this food and they were it was really I, t I described Hawaii which is like a spice mix as a light bulb of flavor it like it illuminates anything that you put in it and I could just see people's eyes kind of pop open when they tasted the soup and tasted the bread and tasted the slug so at the end of each episode I asked my guests to give a shout out broadly to a woman who they admire Adina who would you give a shout out to I would give a shout out to my favorite Torontonian Bonnie Stern she has a special place in my heart because she's someone that I became close friends with after moving to Tel Aviv, and we share a love of Israeli food. She leads culinary tours of Israel, and we've spent a lot of time eating together. And as you know, there's no better way to get to know someone well than breaking bread with them. So I think our intimacy accelerated quickly over many, many meals shared. And I've also had the opportunity to travel to Toronto, where she is truly sort of the mayor of the Toronto food scene. She knows everybody. You can't go anywhere without being approached by someone who tells Bonnie that she taught them how to cook either from her books or from her cooking school, which she had for 37 years, or from a TV appearance. And she's just a super humble, very accomplished, very inspiring person. And I've started calling her my my fairy godmother of Canada. <laughs> well. We have your fairy godmother on the line. Bonnie, hi. How do you how do you like being called the fairy godmother? Well, I'm pretty honored by this and I admire Adina so much. So this is very, very special for me. And I have to say that if she thinks I'm the mayor of Toronto, when she came to Toronto last weekend, she conquered this whole city. No. <laughs> yes. Oh yes. With your with your help. <laughs> So I'm curious, you had a cooking school for 37 years, and you had extraordinary people come through that school. I wonder if there are great stories. When I was reading about Elizabeth David or Jacques Pepin, or like Jacques Pepin came for many years, actually, and he taught for a week for 10 years in the 80s. It was extraordinary. It was like we had our private, our private lessons with Jacques it was amazing. For all of the people who, you know, you bump into on the street or like, oh my gosh, I took cooking classes with you. What do you think is the single thing that people learned from you? Like if, if you had an idea in your mind, like I want everyone to learn 
one thing? Like, is it a dish? Is it a technique? Is it a way to think? What were you trying to do? What I was trying to do right from the start is to make cooking easy for people. Because when I started, it was 1973, and cooking was still kind of a chore for people. And it wasn't something that they were doing all that happily. And so I made it fun and interesting and easy. And I, I think that that's the most or the largest thing that I was able to do is to get people in the kitchen and really have fun, whether it was telling my funny stories that I would tell them or the tricks or the hints, and not so much that they had to follow recipes, but to be able to really cook for their families and give them that love that cooking for people does, you know, and nurture them. And it, it was very special. And and people mention recipes here and there and things like that, but it's really the way they mention it that makes me so happy. And do you make Israeli food? Because Adina and I are talking about Israeli food, and I know I've seen some of your Shabbats online. I've, I've <laughs> followed you for years ever since our Dayton Napa, our weekend long Dayton Napa. Well, I, I started taking, I started taking uh, groups to Israel um, about 14 years ago before food was a big thing. But the first time I went to Israel was in 2004, and I just went on a general tour. And the food was beginning to be sort of so delicious, and I thought it had so much potential. And I don't usually see the future like this, but it had so much potential to be the next big thing. And it took a while, but, I mean, those first couple of trips, people laughed at the sign in our bus that said culinary tour. People actually (laughs) pointed to it and laughed. But Adina's been part of this tour now since I met her. And she always does something wonderful for me, like take a tour of um, the market, the shuk, and or make a meal for us, or uh, cook with Gil Havav, a mutual friend, something really wonderful. Well, we love having you as a shout-out broadly. And because it really is about women shouting out other women, I wonder if there's someone that you would like to shout-out yourself that people need to know about. Well, I mean, Toronto has wonderful, Canada has wonderful um, people who are doing such great things. And I would shout out to Leslie Chesterman, who was a restaurant reviewer for the Montreal Gazette for many years and one of the people that I loved reading her restaurant reviews. And now she's writing a cookbook. And so uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Bonnie. I loved just being able to talk to the shout out broadly. Well, it was really nice to talk to you again, too, because it's been a while. It, it has been. Well, have a, have a great day. And thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. One of the other questions that I always ask my guests, is there a product that you recommend that they might not have heard of that is worth the hype or deserves more hype? I would say Sum Tahini. Tahini is at the base of so many recipes in this book and also the other mini book that I wrote before this one, which is the tahini short stack cookbook. And I'm constantly finding new ways to use it. And the most important thing is to have a high quality base product. And to my mind, Sum Tahini, which is made in Israel, actually sometimes in Palestine, and imported by three American sisters, one of whom is married to a sesame seed broker. That's how the business got started. A lot of people don't know that. Sum tahini is something that you can buy in Whole Foods and you can order online and it will always be there for you. And if you don't introduce any liquid into the tahini, like water, it can sit in a cool place on a shelf for more than a year and be totally fresh. Super versatile 
can you can use it in my book in the tahini blondies or in the tahini caramel tart um, or in a tahini yogurt dressing that I put on my mushroom burgers, you know, just all kinds of ways. So I think tahini would be my vote. Thum tahini specifically. That's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. I love Sum Tahini and um delighted to hear you call it out. My so, pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Adina. Mm. I've loved hearing a little bit about the book, the evolution, and you know, your your life in between thank you. <laughs> New <laughs> York and I wish Israel. we had another eight hours. <laughs> no. Um so I wanna thank uh, my engineer today, Amanda. Thank you, Nina, for always your extraordinary help. If you like what you hear on this podcast, I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcast. And if you have questions or recommendations, please send them along to me. You can find me on Instagram. Just DM me. It's at Speaking Broadly. And Adina, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram at Adina Sussman, A-D-E-N-A-S-U-S-S-M-A-N, or on my website, which is adinasussman.com. That's great. That does it for this week, guys. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week for another great episode. Have a great week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, at heritage underscore radio. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.